Well, good morning, everybody. Yes, indeed, we are in the Gospel of Luke. But before we get to the Gospel of Luke today, it is the second Sunday of the month. And with that, it is time for a building and financial update, which we love to do this any chance we get. And I figured I'd kind of bundle a couple of things for today. So, uh, Good news is uh, this has been a kind of a slow meandering process, but we're starting to get to that, that phase of development where things are starting to fall together. So it looks like, if it didn't happen on Friday, that actually tomorrow our paperwork will go into the city for our permitting stuff, uh, and then they'll have it for somewhere between 8 to 12 weeks, something like that. But if all things went according to plan, which we know that probably won't happen, but if they did we could see dirt starting to get moved around on the lot as early as May. So coming real soon, which is very, very cool. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's a very good thing to clap for. So very exciting there. Uh, the team is working just overtime to put things together and everything else. And so there are some internal kind of renderings that I'm so excited to show you, but I can't show you yet. But we have a great interior designer working on it. This place, when it's done, is going to be like the coolest looking like pub or coffee shop in the world for a church, right? It's going to be really, really cool. Uh, so hopefully in the next month or two, we'll be able to show you those. But we do have a new rendering of the outside of the building. And so you can see that we've got a little bit of the branding going on. That's still going to have to be negotiated with the city. But I want to highlight the fact that it says the hub, and then underneath that it says Redemption Church. And, and I want to keep before us what our mission and vision is as a community of faith here in Duval and kind of the surrounding area. Our heart is to be doing things for the good of the city. And so while we're going to use this facility to do ministry and have Sunday mornings and everything else, we also want to make sure that we are opening it up to the community because we think about Jeremiah chapter 29 where it says, uh, when we seek the welfare of the city, we find our welfare in the context of that. And the whole idea is that Christianity is meant to make an impact in whatever community it exists in. It's meant to make a positive influence and mark on the lives of people. And so the more we open up our building for outside groups, the more we get to rub shoulders, we get to show them who we are, we get to love them in whatever their space is, and, and I believe that is one of the most fruitful ways that we are able to then share the gospel. It's just making ourselves available, and so it's still going to be the hub down there, even when we're meeting on Sunday mornings and everything else, because we're communicating to our community that we are here to bless them. That is our heart behind this whole thing, and so things are coming together great. Love this rendering here. There'll be other things as well, but here you see kind of the lower level floor plan, so you got the auditorium that will come into place, and then we're going to have all of the little ones downstairs as well so the nursery and preschool will be down there and then the four-year everything else and so that's kind of the pretty much now like the finalized plan we've had to do a lot of maneuvering and changing and adapting because when we handed all of this to our architect it's not like they had the flexibility to design anything they wanted we had a limited type of footprint based on just the constraints of the wetlands and what was there before and everything else and so they're having to work really hard to fit everything into the pickle jar so to speak right so they're putting it together and so this will be the main level and then this is the upper level so tons of space on that upper level for some of you that have been curious i'm gonna have to kind of point here but that says kitchen i know many people were like where's our kitchen you got a kitchen, all right. So we had to like figure out how to do this all, but it's come together and it's really cool that way. So things are moving and uh, again, the, the plan has really come together. Our interior designer is doing some really beautiful work in the context of this. And so, man, hopefully by like 2023, like summer of 2023, we could be into this whole thing. So uh, right now, 
we are working on um, some of the lending stuff for the construction loan, so banks are looking at that right now and everything else. With that, I'll just go ahead and go into the financials here really fast. For January, the total giving for January building and general fund was $93,000. Our current balance as a church is $3.5 million, which is really radical to think that just two years ago, it was $500,000. Right? Two years ago, 500000 now, it's $3.5 million. want to encourage you to continue to give to this, because part of what's going to happen with the lenders are going to be like, hey, you guys are still giving, right? This isn't just kind of ended for you. So we want to continue to do that as we get ready for this whole project. But great stuff is happening. God has been really generous to us as a church, and I know I'm getting genuinely excited about this. I mean, I remember two years ago going, yeah, I don't know, man, you know? And then God's just been really, really good. So... Anyway, there's your update for the month, uh, and we're just going to continue to plow forward. But today, we are in the Gospel of Luke. We are looking at a scandalous indictment in chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 11. But as we get underway, I, I want to go ahead and just give a moment for all of us to settle our hearts, give you a moment of silence to pray, and then I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll get underway for the day. Jesus, we want to be a people that are sensitive to your spirit and sensitive in such a way that we are committed to living out your kingdom values. I mean, even as we're going to be looking at the subject of the kingdom a little bit today, I pray that we as your people will crave to understand what the kingdom really is, how we embody the essence and values of the kingdom. And that we as individuals and as a church will look at our responsibility in our current culture and we will fight and figure out and desire and long to be your people in such a way that the world sees a picture of you. They see your love, your grace, your flourishing, your healing of the nations and that we will be those ambassadors. That we won't try to contrive that or just try to kind of, you know, bite down hard and grin and bear it or white knuckle it, but rather we will be so in tune with you, Holy Spirit, that your fruit flows out of our lives naturally and intuitively because we are synced up with you and we want your best in what we do and all the little nuances of our lives. And so Jesus, just continue to show us and guide us and help us to see how you inform everything. And that from that, we would inform the world around us of your heart and your ambitions and your kingdom. So we thank you, Jesus, for your word, for your spirit, for your guidance, and for your church. In your good name, amen. All right, so we are in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, like I said, and this is all about a scandalous indictment. The whole series is a scandalous God, and now the scandalous God is going to bring an indictment. And what's interesting about this section of Luke is the indictment is not simply against the religious establishment. And that's been true a lot in Luke. We've talked about that already, that most of the chapters in Luke have Jesus kind of dealing with religion. But today it broadens out a little bit. Because what is true of religion in Israel's particular setting is true of the nation as a whole. So while religion kind of represents this kind of stoic kind of press against Jesus, in a lot of ways, that's the problem of Israel at large. At scale, it's also struggling with Jesus. And so Jesus is going to say some things that highlights this reality. 
And, and, and so, if anything, we want to start to realize that what is plaguing religion plagues the nation as a whole. And what the nation as a whole is struggling with is adapting to a new vision of what God is up to. They had a preconceived idea of what God was going to do when God shows up based on promises of the Old Testament. Now God is there in the person of Jesus, and they just can't make the turn. It's too big of a jump in their thinking. And so Jesus is beginning to press on that a little bit more, and we feel the pressure and tension begins to unfold. Now, last week, we were kind of in a section where there was a context all around humility, and today kind of continues that theme. And so last week, we talked about this need for humility over the essence of pride and things like self-awareness. That we would be self-aware and humility in such a way that we don't become millstone-type people to those who share our faith. And then from there, we learned about this idea of humility, even in things like forgiveness and faith and obedience. Like, all of that was there in this particular section. But this idea of humility continues into this next little part of the story, and it's this idea of humility and gratitude. A genuine gratitude for what God is doing in a person's life. And so it starts in verse 11. And it says, as Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, so we already learned way back in Luke that his face is set toward that city because he knows that's where he's going to go to be rejected. So he continues on the journey, and as he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria, there's this event that happens. It says, he entered a village there, and ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, and they were crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, most of us are, are somewhat familiar with leprosy, at least as far as in concept, that it was brutal physically. And the simplest way to understand leprosy was simply that it would um, kind of uh, affect the, the nerve endings of your extremities. You, you would learn, lose a sense of feeling. And so from that, if you had no feeling in your hands, your feet, your face, your ears, your nose, whatever else, you would do different things like hit it against a rock or wash your faith with, with, with scalding water or whatever else and, and because you didn't have a sense of feeling it would create infection it would create rotting tissue and so this idea of decay was because they didn't have a sense of feeling and then when they would do damage it would just get oozy and nasty and painful and, and that's leprosy and so physically it's excruciating but the worst part about it wasn't the physicality part but rather it was the social element because as soon as this was true to your life, then your whole social existence would change. In fact, in the book of Numbers, the Old Testament law says this, command the people of Israel to remove from the camp anyone who has a skin disease or a discharge. So imagine, you're a husband or a father, and then one day you start to realize that you can't feel your fingers and your hands, and from that you gouge yourself, and you're beginning to have an infection, and people look at you and say, you know what, I know your husband, I know your father, I know your family's dependent on you, but you have to get out of the camp now. You can't be with your family any longer. You can't take care of them as you've been taking care of them. You're just out. Or maybe you're a mother and a wife, and suddenly it's you have to leave. Or you're a grandparent or a child, even a child. Sorry, you have to be outside of the camp now. I mean, that is the social kind of effect and baggage that happens. And it's still harsher in Leviticus chapter 13. It says, those who suffer from a serious skin disease 
must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation, and they must be placed outside of the camp. So just imagine that for a second, because I think it's easy for us to read these passages and go, that was so long ago, and it was so different. But if you put yourself in the, the sandals of an individual that would be in this situation, imagine you're a victim of this thing that you just you couldn't help it. But now as the victim, you must manage the situation. And you must manage it by you taking ownership of your defect, in essence, and then you must broadcast that to everybody. There was no hepalas back then, right? You have to let the world know, and in no uncertain terms. I mean, notice that. It doesn't just say that you were supposed to call out unclean, unclean. You have to look the part, so you have to rip your clothing so everybody can see from a distance, oh, that person looks like they're wearing rags. That's a dangerous person. And then you can't even comb your hair, so you don't ever get to feel good even though you're sick. No, you have to look sick as you feel sick. And then you broadcast, I'm not worthy, I'm not to be near you, I can't be touched or associated with. I mean, man, alive. Talk about like wearing out your self-worth and value. That was the life of the leper. And so, these people are suffering, they're banished, they're isolated, they're humiliated, but they've been hearing stories. And they've been hearing stories about a healer that's been traveling all over the place, and now the healer is on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing through their town, and so they're thinking, maybe this is it. And so, with hope, with faith, with desire, they approach Jesus. And they're not yelling out, unclean, unclean. At this point, they shift gears, and they're saying, Lord, please have mercy on us. And so in other words, what they've been doing for a long time, realistically, is they've been obeying the Old Testament law. They've been saying, unclean, unclean. But now today, because they need something to change in their lives, they're going to go against the law, and they're going to approach this potential healer. And they need him to act and move. So it says in verse 14, Jesus looked at them, and he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Now this is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One is this. Um, notice that Jesus doesn't just heal them on the spot, which is kind of strange. I mean, normally that's what he does, right? Like he touches somebody, he makes some statement, and they're suddenly cleansed. No, he, he just says, all right, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and see the religious leaders and show yourself to them. Here's what I love about this. The very first thing he puts before them is an action of faith. He says, if, if you're real serious about this, I want you to go and take this step first. I want you to approach the very group of people that are charged with making sure that you stay outside of the city and outside of the community. So imagine you're this person with leprosy you come to Jesus, and he's like, okay, go see the very people that you're afraid to go see right now. Some would be like, forget it, I'm out. That's just more shame. I got to go toward the priest. I got to go into town. I got to say, unclean, unclean, and I got to show how awful I am. Like, forget it. But there's another layer to this, which is if you were smitten in this way, 
but you thought you were healed, maybe it went away or whatever else, your job was to go to the priests, and then they would give you a thumbs up. And if the priest gave you a thumbs up, it meant you were welcomed again into the community. So you might have been sick, you might have been on the outside, but if you think you're healed, and you come to the inside, and they say, yes, you're good, then you're brought back in. You're restored. You can be with your family and friends and have your job back and everything else. So you have to go through the priests, in essence, to get this clean bill of health. And so there's fear involved, but there's hope involved, and there's faith involved, and action involved. It's all there unfolding. And so they go. And as they are walking in this act of faith, they sense transformation, right? They sense healing. So I can't imagine what it's like. It's like, is they're just kind of going, and suddenly it's like, suddenly I feel like my hand again. I haven't felt that in years. Why am I feeling my fingers? And they, well, things are coming back to normal, right? It's an amazing scene that begins to transpire. So this is in verse 15. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, and he was shouting, praise God, and he fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him for what he had done. And it says here, this man was a Samaritan. And so Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And then Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Now, while we could do a big deep dive on this whole thing, we're just going to do a lightning round instead. We're going to try to rip through this really quick because I think there's three things that really stand out to me. The first is that there are 10 people that are healed. Nine are Jews. One is a Samaritan. So nine are the insiders. The one that long for God and kingdom and Bible. Those nine. And then there's this one that is the outsider, the unwelcome, the undesired by the Jewish people. And it's interesting because the name Jew or Jewish comes from uh, Judean, which means to praise. So these nine individuals, their very name means to praise or praise God. But these nine praisers of God don't come back to praise. It's the one guy that the praisers would say was undesired of God, unwanted of God, uh, un, uh, like the, the affections of God doesn't rest on him. That's the only guy to come back and actually praise. So the praisers don't come and praise and the outsider, he's the one that steps in and he's praising, he's thanking, he's appreciative. That's the other thing. Again, it's a story about how the outsider is responding to Jesus in ways very different than what should be the insider who gets it. And just as an added note in this, I think it's really interesting. Technically, this man, um, he disobeys Jesus in this story. What did Jesus say? Go show yourselves to the priest. But while this man senses a healing on his way to the priest, he just turns around and comes right back to Jesus. Right? So he doesn't go to the priest first and then come back. It just seems like he comes right back to Jesus. And yet this act of disobedience is almost a deeper, more thorough obedience. Because he's so overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for him, he can't help but come back and just say thank you. It's this authentic, heartfelt gratitude for what God had just done in his life. So this story then acts as a bit of a snapshot to the system-wide sickness of Israel, right? So the story isn't just haphazardly placed there. 
Luke sees it as strategic. It's giving us a sense of, oh, this is where the national psyche is at. When God shows up and does a thing, instead of them being overwhelmed, slain by such a rich grace, and grateful for what God does, these guys just go on to their way of life again. Like, sweet, I get to go back to my family and have my job. And they're not thankful in the same way that this person is. But that's Israel at this point in their history. They've lost gratitude. They've lost an obedience of heart. They love their pride or their rules or their superiority. They love their vision of what they perceive their future should be. They're committed to their notions of what they think the future should arrive as. And so from that, they're pretty far off the rails as a group by and large. And so what Jesus is coming into the world to do and what they long for are going to be two different things because their hearts are placed in wrong spaces. And so all the more as Jesus continues to reveal what his kingdom's all about, they're not going to welcome that because their heart isn't in alignment. So as the future unfolds, there'll be tension and divide. But it seems that the future's on their mind. And so with that, the leaders who represent the people come to Jesus to talk about the future. Not knowing their own heart condition, right? Not knowing they're broken inside. They, they have agendas, they have hearts and desires for things. And so it says in verse 20, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Now, kingdom for them means something, right? They've been longing for this kingdom of God since the Old Testament period. So when they say this word kingdom, they have something in their mind. What, what I want to make sure we understand is that words mean things, but not all words mean the same things to everybody who uses those words. So when they hear kingdom and think kingdom, they have a vision of the future that they are holding to. When Jesus thinks kingdom and speaks of kingdom, he envisions something radically different. And so Jesus then speaking to this issue says, well, the kingdom of God, it can't be detected with visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for ready? The kingdom of God is already among you. So this is going to be disruptive to, the, to again, what they envisioned as a future, because they, they thought the kingdom would have certain dynamics and would fulfill certain criteria. And now Jesus says, and notice that, he says it, it's present. It's in the present tense. The kingdom has already emerged into the world. He says, but the signs you're looking for are not the signs you're going to see. Now, now here's what's interesting about this. It sounds as though Jesus is saying there are no signs associated with the kingdom. He's kind of pulling their leg on this one a little bit, right? Because there have been signs associated with the kingdom, He's been displaying them. He's been pointing to them. Since Luke chapter 4, he spoke about the signs that would prove the arrival of the kingdom. But these grand poobahs, they have a different desire for the kingdom. Right? They have this desire for shock and awe. They're thinking when the kingdom arrives, God's going to open up a can of whoop wrath on all our enemies. Right? Against Rome, against the sinners, against all who stand in the way of our vision for our way of life. And so they have this poor-sighted vision of the kingdom. And so they're looking for the wrong signs in the wrong ways. And at the core of their problem is that they want a kingdom, but they really don't want God's king. And that's now the point of tension. 
And what Jesus is saying is, the kingdom has arrived. Why? Because the king has arrived. Wherever the king is, is the kingdom. So these Pharisees are longing for the very thing that is right there in their presence, but that's been their source of conflict for the entire Gospel of Luke. And the problem will be, if you don't want the king, you don't want the kingdom. You're rejecting the king, and so you're rejecting his kingdom. You front-loaded what you think the kingdom should look like, and now God is on the scene, he's revealing what it's really all about, and you don't like what you're seeing. And so the signs are present, but they're rejecting the signs. See, to them, they thought the kingdom would come with apocalypse and revolution and destruction of what they perceived to be the bad guys. But what are the signs of the kingdom that Jesus has been displaying this entire time? Well, you go back to Luke chapter 4, and he reads the scroll of Isaiah, and he's like, hey, here's the proof that the Lord has come. Here's the proof of the kingdom. The deaf, they're going to hear. The lame are going to walk. The blind are going to see. The possessed are going to be liberated. The dead are going to be raised. The gospel is going to be preached. The signs of the kingdom seem so undramatic, but in another sense, they are so beautiful and so humane and so caring. They just wanted a kingdom that would destroy their foes. They couldn't envision a kingdom that loved their enemies into newness of life. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. And so they're looking at the king and they're rejecting his kingdom all the way up to the point where Jesus is like, man, all these miracles are happening as proof of the kingdom, and like seven minutes ago, I just healed ten dudes. And guess what? Nine of them, your kind, weren't thankful. One, the outsider, that was the one that was thankful. So you can see again the tension. The Pharisees, they claim a thing. We want God's kingdom but they really didn't want God's king. They stand against him. And it's not that they can't see the signs, it's that when they see the signs, they just don't like what they see. Right? They don't like what Jesus is representing. They don't like the message he's communicating. They don't like this idea of a gospel of grace for all these sinful outsiders that are flocking to Jesus. They don't like the idea of the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain. The the marching orders of the kingdom are those two messages. Honestly, if you just take the Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Plain, you get the values of the kingdom consolidated. They heard that and they're like, we don't want that. That demands too much sacrifice and servanthood and putting others before us and getting a hold of our own emotions and our own vengeance. They just didn't want what Jesus was, was peddling. They wanted superiority and nationalism and moralism and law they didn't want king or kingdom so the kingdom had emerged and they were rejecting it wholesale so much so that they'll kill the king right that's going to be the dilemma now the question for us is well what does this mean for us right if jesus said the kingdom began as he arrives on the scene 2000 years ago does that have a meaning for us i'd say absolutely What it means for us is that for the last 2,000 years, Jesus' kingdom has been on the move in the world. And our responsibilities as followers of Jesus are to embody and to incarnate those kingdom values in whatever context we find ourselves in in life. That we're supposed to be trying to take that Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Plain, and say, how do I live this out here in the greater Seattle area in 2022? 
How do I show the world what Jesus is really like and how Jesus really does things and Jesus' priorities for life? How do I show that this kingdom is spreading and advancing and transforming the world? Because that's the promise to Abraham. I will bless the nations through you, Abraham. And when we get to the New Testament, we realize that Jesus is that fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And the mission's still the same. The mission is to, to bring blessing, to do things for the good of the city, Right? To do things to seek their welfare because in that we find our welfare. In other words, that's just kingdom stuff. And that's been advancing and increasing and displacing things for 2,000 years. It really has. And if you look at Jesus' storytelling, the parables, he talks about this. He says the kingdom starts as a little seed, but it grows into this mighty tree. He says the kingdom is like a little bit of yeast that you put in dough, but then the dough gets just insanely huge. Or the kingdom is like two different types of seeds that grow in a field, wheat and weeds. He says, but they grow together in the kingdom that is the world. And then one day, Jesus will come and harvest out. The weeds will be taken away in judgment, and the wheat is what remains. Like, these are all the stories that Jesus talks about when it comes to his kingdom. And so, for us, what we want to realize is that we're not just sitting around waiting for the kingdom— but rather we're also a part of investing the spirit and essence and values of the kingdom, right? Its expansion is connected to our expression of the values of the kingdom. We have a relationship to it in that sense. And so it's an incredible opportunity. It's a challenge, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to follow and display Jesus until his kingdom is fully realized in the world. And that's what we need to understand, that there is an already and a not yet element to this idea of his kingdom. It started 2,000 years ago, but it's still on the move. And Jesus sort of then speaks to this a little bit in verse 22. It says, then he turns to his disciples, and he says, the time is coming when you will long to see that day when the Son of Man returns, but you won't see it. So just for a second, I just want to stop there. To, to help you understand that he's looking at his disciples and saying, I, I know you're waiting for that climactic thing. Let me just break it to you. You're not going to see it. You're going to come and die, and others are going to come after you before that day comes. So there's an already and not yet element. He says, people will tell you, look, there's the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and don't follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. But first, the Son of Man must suffer terribly and be rejected by this generation. See, I, I believe Jesus says all of this um, because if the disciples were overhearing the conversation with the Pharisees and, and Jesus says what he says about the kingdom is now, it started with my presence, they're going to be like, whoa, this is as good as it gets. Like, this is the best it is for the kingdom. Like, they could get concerned, too, because here's what they all thought in their culture, that when the kingdom came, it was going to be the single abrupt thing, right? So on day one, it's like X, but on day two, everything changes, and it's radically different. And now Jesus is breaking the news that, now the kingdom is kind of a progressive expansion. It's going to take time to grow. It's not all going to happen in a day, but it's going to be this unfolding thing that has different kinds of phases to it. And so he wants his disciples to realize that, hey, man, we're in this for the long haul, right? It's going to start off in ways that are unsuspecting and small, but it's going to develop over the course of time. The other thing they have to realize is that even though the kingdom had begun with his presence, 
there's going to be a tough road to seeing that kingdom unfold. In fact, he says the Son of Man must be rejected by the whole of the nation to see this move forward. That would sound a little heartbreaking, I'm sure. But what's sad is that this kingdom was meant for Israel, and yet it'll be a kingdom that begins without Israel because Israel will kill their king. Right? It sounds like a tragic beginning. It really does. But see, we know the rest of the story. We know that in the story, yes, they killed the king, but three days later, the king will rise. And as the king rises, the kingdom will be underway and advancing. And the kingdom will continue to advance. And I want to give you some courage here. It's guaranteed to advance. It's guaranteed. So no matter how hard life is and how abrupt things are and how cruel it can appear, no, the kingdom is on the move and it continues to grow and advance and increase until finally one day the king returns again, right? That's the whole narrative of the Bible. The kingdom, king will return and with that there'll be a giant new jump in the kingdom. In fact, for those who are visual learners, I put together a little bit of a graphic here this week so we kind of understand, Right? In the first coming, the Son of Man, he comes to serve, to suffer, and to save. And the kingdom is inaugurated at that point, right? It's underway. You and I are members of a kingdom. You and I are representatives of a kingdom. We have a citizenship related to that kingdom. Every day when we live out the values of the kingdom, the world experiences the presence of Christ in the world. That's what we're meant to do. And so the kingdom is progressing on earth, but we also pray what? That the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So we know that that day is coming, and one day the king will return, the son of man, he comes. And with that, he consummates the kingdom fully. And the kingdom comes on earth, just as it is in heaven. That's the day we long for. That's the day we set our attentions on. But we know we have a responsibility up to that time to represent what he's all about. But one day he will come. Verse 26 speaks of this. When the son of man returns... It will be like in the days of Noah. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered the boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building until the morning Lot left Sodom and then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house and pack. A person out in the field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. Then Jesus says this, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you let your life go, you will save it. That night, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Now, there's a lot happening in that whole section we just read. And we could, again, spend a bunch of time trying to unpack all the details. I think there's just a couple of lessons that are really important to understand. The first is what Jesus is saying pretty clearly here is that when that day comes, it will be unanticipated for all. Unanticipated, right? Like, you just aren't going to see it coming when it comes. And I think this is really valuable because I know some of us get really kind of like interested in all the end time stuff. And we want to see all the signs and we want to figure out how all the pieces fit and everything else. And Jesus is like, well, let me help you. You won't see it coming, right? It's like, I'll just do you a favor. 
you're, you're not going to realize when that day comes until that day comes. But here's the tension he's creating. He's saying, because you don't know when that day is, you want your life and your priorities and your vision for this world to be aligned with what I'm doing. Right? So you want everything you're doing to be communicating the kingdom, communicating the gospel, communicating your life with God, communicating how I'm making all things new and I'm seeking to restore and bless the nations. If you're just living for yourself and doing your own thing, he goes, man, you're going to be taken away to one thing you want to, don't want to be taken away to. But if you're doing my thing, in my ways, well, then you're going to be blessed in a different sort of way. And so he's just trying to help us get our bearings. Like, oh, yeah, everything's supposed to be about Jesus. That's where I'm supposed to put all of my focus and all the things I do in this life. So in that sense, the lesson's rel- relatively clear. So from this, the disciples ask, where will this happen, Lord? Which is weird. They didn't ask when. They asked where. You're like, well, why? I don't know. They just asked, all right? Like, is it going to happen in our space? Whose space? It's not important. What Jesus says is, just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Like, okay, so that's a vivid picture, right? Vultures and carcasses. Signal the end is near. What does that mean? What are the signs? Well, here's, again, what's funny to me. Sometimes when people get caught up in the end time stuff, they're like, well, the signs are going to be with Russia, and it's going to be with Israel, and there's this mark of the beast, and there's this antichrist, and there's this one world government, and there's all these things. But Jesus said those aren't the signs. None of those things are the signs of when he returns. What are the signs in the text we just read? He said people will be eating and drinking, and working, and sleeping, and buying, and selling, and farming, and building. In other words, on the day he returns, it's going to look the same as every other day. See, that's how urgent he makes this. You won't see it coming until it arrives. So if we're trying to figure out all the signs, and read the tea leaves, he's like, you're wasting your time. It's just going to be like an average, everyday occurrence when it comes. But until that day, you want to live out the kingdom values in extraordinary ways. Because here's the thing, and I'm, I'm trying to own this more in my own life. Um, we're not here, I'm not here in this world, so I can just enjoy the American dream, all right? And save some money and ensure my security and do some fun stuff and take some trips and all of that. Those things aren't bad. But in the context of all of those things, those are all reasons, excuses, and opportunities to share the essence of the kingdom. Right? Th- those are all the ways by which we display to the world how we are a different kind of people motivated by different kinds of things. Right? We're motivated by, again, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Like that drives what we do. Or we're motivated by a people who display the fruit of the Spirit that we genuinely, no matter what the conditions of life, we show love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Like these great qualities that we're a people that genuinely show the world what authentic love looks like. That passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is so clarifying when Paul defines this is what real love is all about. And and yeah, I want to remember too, when he writes that, two things stick out to me. First of all, that church was tearing itself apart by division. Tearing itself apart. You read 1 Corinthians, they're just fracturing all over the place. And I can't help but just look at 1 Corinthians and then I just overlay that with our own culture right now, just tearing itself apart. And what it needs so desperately is a people that embody Paul's definition of love. Right? They see something different. 
But the other thing that sticks out to me about that passage in 1 Corinthians is um, Paul says, you know what, if you don't have this kind of love, but you do supernatural things, you prophesy, you do incredible feats of undeniable ability, but you don't love, he goes, you got nothing. You got nothing. Like, love is the thing. So loving God, loving our neighbor, loving our enemies, these are the kingdom things that we are meant to share, to do, to embody until Jesus comes again. In other words, we give ourselves away for the sake of God and the sake of others in the name of the gospel. Because Jesus said, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you let go of your life for my sake, you'll save it. The early church had a phrase, Maranatha. Oh Lord, come. See, that should be us when we think about a section like this. Oh Lord, come. But in that, our heart should be, and Lord, when you come, may I be one who can say, I hope I've pleased you well. Uh, I, I did it as you wanted me to do it. I showed you to the world as we waited for you to come. I revealed your kingdom and its heart and its gospel. So glad to have you here, Jesus. So glad you've come. That's to be our Maranatha song. That's to be our heart. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, help us to, again, own and express your kingdom that is advancing and alive in this world. May we be ambassadors of this upside down and backwards way of doing life and seeing things and advancing your causes. May we be faithful to your good news that transforms lives in radical ways. Perhaps there's some here this morning or some people watching online where you go, I'm yet to follow Jesus. I'm yet to be an ambassador to this kingdom. I'm yet to do my life in these ways. And you go, but I want to follow him. I want to have my life dedicated to Christ and, and, and have my life then embody these values that really authentically change the world. There's many things that won't change the world, but the stuff of Jesus will change the world. And so if you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, man, I want to follow this Jesus. I want to surrender my life to his purposes and his cause. That's a prayer way for you where you simply say, Jesus, take my life. I know I've been going my own way, doing my own th thing, living for my own purposes, but I want to live for you. Forgive me of my sin and bring me into your family and use me for your good kingdom purposes. You make that your prayer in your way. He hears you. He changes you. And then he redeploys you for eternal lasting value. So one day when he comes again, he will be able to say to you, well done. Well done, my son, my daughter. You've been faithful in all these things. Now inherit this life I have for you. If you make that your prayer, you're brought into his family. You're one of his kids to be used by him. Jesus, again, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. May we be faithful to you, not because we have to, but as we learned with the one Samaritan, we're grateful. We're grateful for what you've done. That it's not work, but it's worship for you. We thank you in your name. Amen.